Amen. You may be seated. The day was May 1st, 1893. I don't think any of us were around then. Uh, May 1st, 1893. President at the time was a man by the name of Grover Cleveland, the only president to serve non-consecutive terms. He was known as, as Grover the, the Good. Well, he hoisted his rather large frame. Have you ever seen pictures of Grover Cleveland? He's a big man, and he's got a big mustache to go along with that. He hoisted his large frame onto a platform in Chicago, Illinois. At exactly 12.08 p.m., after much fanfare and speech-making, as was the, the habit back in the, the 19th century, exactly 12.08, just after noon, he turned a golden key, it closed an electric circuit, and activated enormous steam engines away from where the festivities were, were going on. In just a few brief moments, the generators roared to life, and the great Columbian Exposition, the World's Fair of 1893, was opened. Over the next six months, it would have literally hundreds of thousands, and in fact, millions of people would attend that event in Chicago. Uh, it was a, really a first for many things. The very first Ferris wheel was built as a spectacle at that, uh, at that event. Um, we, we, we had great inventors like Tesla and Thomas Edison who were there just displaying all of their new inventions to the world. But what was particularly unique about the World's Fair of 1893 was for the first time in history, an event of this size was illuminated not by kerosene lamps, but by electricity. There were 200,000 incandescent light bulbs, which were a brand spanking new invention, that illuminated the fair at night, outlining all the buildings. And you can look up on Google Images, see what this, this looked like. It was called the White City because of the, the, the beauty and just the brilliance of the architecture and the light as it was used. And by the way, the entire thing was demolished after the World's Fair. You can't even go and see it today. But an incredible, uh, incredible venue that was built for this. In 1893, as people streamed to this event from all over the country, they were absolutely dazzled by the spectacle of electric lights at nighttime. Now, up to this time, everybody lighted their homes with kerosene. Once the sun goes down, yeah, you might read by the firelight if you're Abraham Lincoln or use a kerosene lamp. But it's pretty much lights out once the sun goes down. The electric light bulb changed everything. People who came from all over the world thought that seeing light in that fashion, they, they had gone and gone, gone to heaven. One person says that night is the magician of the fair that just gives this, this brilliance and this beauty to the white city. Just try to imagine with me what life would be like without light bulbs. Uh, I think, Dennis, you had a little bit of a firsthand experience with this this morning. When the power goes out, it's kind of like, what, what do we do? Like, how do we, how do we function when, when electricity is, is not working and when the lights aren't coming on as they should? There are a few inventions that have transformed our lives quite like the electric light bulb. It's hard to imagine a world without light. What is it about light that, that, that we love? Well, light dispels darkness, right? You turn the light on and it, and it drives, the, drives the darkness out. Light attracts admiration. There's a reason why, you know, you have billboards that light up because you're driving and you, oh, you look over there, you, you see that, it, so it dispels darkness, it attracts admiration. Light highlights beauty. You can use light in some ways that are just incredible, right? Just think about how, how your home can be lit. I mean, you could just have a big old halogen light hanging from a, you know, a wire off the ceiling. That's not what we do. We, we have these light fixtures, and even in this room, there are light fixtures that we use light to highlight beauty. And in the Bible, light plays an important role, right? Light will picture holiness. Light will picture truth. We know in 1 John 1 and verse 5 that God is light, and in him is what? No darkness at all. And that's in contrast to sin. Light's picturing holiness. Light often pictures, uh, pictures truth, right? That, we, that, that the light comes in and the truth enters and it dispels the, the mist and the darkness of, of spiritual ignorance. Well, here in, in Luke chapter 11... Jesus is calling us, he's calling his listeners, calling us as readers, to love the light. Calling us to love the light. Now, we're going to be looking at a larger section than what we just read this morning, but he's using light as a metaphor for his self-revelation. As Isaac read for us, that Jesus is the true light that comes into the world. Jesus himself will say later on in John's Gospel, I am the light of the world. He's the, he's the ultimate expression of God's truth and holiness and character. But though the light of God's truth and glory is shining brightly and perfectly in the person of Jesus, those in his day were completely blind to it. 
We saw last week that as Jesus was preaching, let's just jump back there, um, in, in verse chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 15, he's performed a big miracle. Some of them said, uh, Luke 11, verse 15, he casts out demons through Beelzebub, the chief of the demons. Like, listen, Jesus is in cahoots with Satan. They basically say, Jesus is satanic, he's evil. Verse 16, others testing him, tempting him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But the point being, the, the general response to Jesus, yeah, some people, some people responded in faith, but the majority of people said, he's demonic, or others said, yeah, we don't really have enough evidence here. These miracles aren't quite cutting it for us. Now, last week we looked at verses 17 to 23, where Jesus answers charge number one. You say, you're demonic, Jesus. Jesus is like, no, that's absurd. That's nuts. That would be the equivalent of Satan nuking himself. Satan's not a moron. He wouldn't do that. So you've got options. Either I'm empowered by Satan. Satan is nuking himself. That doesn't make sense. Or I'm actually here from God, which means the kingdom has come and you need to respond to me. What Jesus is now going to do, look at verse 29. When the people were gathered thick together, the crowds are increased, and he began to say, this is an evil generation. They seek a sign. So the people were saying, we need more evidence. He's now going to deal with them. Here's the point. The light is shining. Some people are like, now the light's actually darkness. And other people are like, eh, it's not bright enough. And Jesus is saying, no, the problem is not with the light. The problem is with your sight. So this passage that we're going to look at warns us against the dangers of rejecting the light. We all have access to the light. You're sitting in church today. You're hearing the word of God. Uh, you have Bibles. We have access to truth. There are tremendous dangers with re- rejecting the light while also calling us to receive the light, to truly receive Christ. Now, I get that we say, oh, we need to receive Jesus. That's almost like a Christian cliche. We need to receive Jesus. What does that actually mean? Uh, as many as received him to them gave you power to become the sons of God, John 1, verse 12. It's biblical language that I think has been used so much that we've lost sight of what it means. I want to take that phrase, receiving Jesus, receiving the light, and restore to it sort of its biblical fullness. Talk about what does it mean to receive Jesus. We must receive the light. We must not reject the light. We must receive Jesus. So what does this involve? Well, overlapping a little bit with the passage we looked at last week, number one, I want us to see this, that receiving Jesus requires transformed affections. Back in verse 24, Jesus has just blown apart the Pharisees' argument that he's actually in cahoots with Satan. He says, when the unclean spirit, okay, the demon has gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return unto the house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. We noted last week that there were were Jewish exorcists who had sort of limited capacity to bring about temporary relief from the effects of demons. And I think that's what Jesus is describing here. You know, one of these Jewish exorcists comes along and brings temporary relief. The demon voluntarily goes out. But eventually he comes back and takes back over the individual, and the end result is far worse. Jesus, in effect, has been saying, that's not the way, that's not how I operate. I truly transform those who I rescue. I bring permanent deliverance, not temporary relief. He's warning us against just moral reformation. The demon goes out. The worst effects of the demon's oppression are sort of mitigated. But the end result is deadly. The scribes, the Pharisees, who are the the opponents here. Remember, there's this overarching theme of opposition and hostility that's, that's running as a current through this passage. The scribes, the Pharisees, they offered this kind of external reformation. Hey, here's some rules. Follow these rules. Deal with kind of the worst parts of your life. Just look good to people on the outside. Temporary relief, moral reformation, but not real transformation. It says the heart is like this house that you kick the demon out, the house is kind of tidied up, but eventually the demon moves back in, right? If you think about cities where there's a lot of unoccupied buildings, that's not a good thing, right? Cities like Detroit, New Orleans, where the the population has shrunk, it actually becomes a a magnet for crime, having all of these open buildings. Saying That's what this heart is like where, yeah, the worst effects of evil have been expelled from the life, but they've not actually been replaced with the rule and the reign of Jesus, who is the king, the coming of the kingdom. Now, we have examples of this, this thing today, this type of thing today, where many religions will be like, hey, let me help you clean up your life. Throughout churches throughout the city, there will be sermons that will meet the felt needs of people. Hey, here's how to have a, how to have a better marriage. And indeed, those principles will help people have a better marriage. 
Hey, here's how to raise your kids better, and indeed they can raise their kids better. Hey, here's how to budget according to biblical principles. And those are all good things. They'll help people's lives. But you can do all of those things without Jesus, right? You can sort of expel, as it were, the worst effects of sin in your life and have a better marriage and have happier kids and have a more balanced budget. And Jesus is saying there's eternal danger with mere moral reformation if it does not lead to Christ dwelling in the heart by faith. We see the, the promise of civic religion. You know, one nation under God. Generic prayers in schools. Right? Man, if we could just get back to that. But we say one nation under God. Okay, what God is that? Prayers offered in schools. If you look at the prayers that were prayed in schools, they were not actually Christian. They were just sort of generic prayers. And I don't know that it actually helps anyone. It gives people a semblance of religion. It gives people a semblance of, oh, we're, we're sort of one nation under God, but it's so generic and it is devoid of Christ. That, that's like putting a, a Band-Aid on a tumor, right? That's like saying, well, we'll just sort of deal with the worst effects of ignoring God and godlessness in our society with a generic God. What is needed is not more civic religion. It is not more sort of self-help or spiritual uh, renewal without Christ. What is needed is the transformation of the affections. What Jesus is saying by not saying it is, think of the alternative. What's needed is not just kicking the demon out, but replacing him, getting a new occupant to the life. Right? You could go through your 12-step program and appeal to your higher power, and unless that higher power is God revealed in Christ through the gospel, your 12-step program will send you to hell. All right? We need Christ. Jesus says the end result is worse than the first. Peter makes the same point in 2 Peter chapter 2. He says that the people who have some kind of knowledge of God, but then they go back, it's like it's a pig going back to the mire. And you know why the pig goes back to the mire? Because the pig is still a pig. It's not been fundamentally transformed into a sheep in Christ's flock. Jesus has some chilling words in Matthew 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Many will say unto me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out demons in thy name? Have we not done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. There's going to be people who one day will stand before God on Judgment Day who will be absolutely shocked to find out that they are not being welcomed into heaven and instead cast into hell. That's chilling. That should make us really step back and evaluate our hearts, evaluate your heart, say, Okay, if I just got moral reformation, I've kicked out a demon, but instead Satan's got a greater hold on my life now because I've just sort of inoculated myself to the gospel. I thought that I got the real thing. I thought that I got a, a lasting solution when it's been just sort of temporary suppression of the worst effects of sin in our lives. You see, hell will be full of people who attended church. Hell will be full of people who even performed miracles. Hell will be full of people who used religious lingo Hell will be full of people who never cussed, never drank, never smoked. People who lived moral lives. You know why? Because those are not the things that save. Jesus is the only one who can save. You can have all the morality in the world and still not have Jesus. So what Jesus offers is not mere moral reformation, but spiritual transformation. Where it's not just, okay, kick the demon out, temporarily clean the house up, but he moves in. Okay, we have in our text here, it says he takes us, the, the demon takes seven spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter, and notice verse 26, and they dwell there. I love that word, dwell. The, the word there is the idea of settle down. It's even got that sense in the, in the Greek word. They come in, they settle down, they, they start collecting their mail there, they start redecorating. One of the things I love is this word gets used in Ephesians 3, verse 17, where Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus, he's saying, I'm praying that Christ would settle down, would dwell in your hearts through faith. He comes in and he transforms the affections. You see, being born again is not simply about moral reformation. It is about the complete transformation of our affections. About Christ ruling our lives, of Christ being the object of our love. The gospel does not simply give you a new rule book, a new list of ethical guidelines, the gospel gives you a new love. Where the old loves for sin are driven out and Christ comes in and becomes the object of our affections. Jesus comes in, he does not simply expel evil, but he replaces evil. 
He replaces the demon not with just a, here's an angel to sort of sit on the other shoulder to, to, to counteract his you know, good advice and bad advice. But he himself, the person of the Spirit, moves in and dwells within us when we become Christians. That's awesome. He replaces evil and he regenerates the heart. Jesus does not say, unless a man clean up his life, he shall never enter the kingdom. He says, unless a man be born again, he will never enter the kingdom. It's not simply offer better morality than what the world has. He offers himself infinitely better. So receiving Christ, okay, so the Pharisees are rejecting him. That's the context here. You're demonic. We need more, we need more evidence. Or maybe, yeah, we're kind of fascinated. But truly receiving Christ is so much more than that. It means transformed affections. Have you experienced the new birth? Do you have transformed affections? Or has Christianity simply been a Band-Aid on a tumor? Has it simply been a paint job on a car that needs a new transmission? Or do you really have Christ dwelling in your heart by faith, transforming your life from the inside out? So receiving Christ, it means transformed affections. But secondly, it requires attentive ears. Verse 27, Jesus is in the middle of this teaching. There's big crowds around. And as he's going along, somebody interrupts him. And it came to pass as he spake these things, he's in the middle of speaking, in the middle of preaching. This is the same setting, the same day, the same sermon. A certain woman in the crowd, in the company, lifted up her voice. This means she's speaking quite loudly. And said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee, and the paps which thou hast sucked. And he said, Yea, rather blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it. So she comes along and talks about blessedness. We get the word blessing in here a couple of times. And essentially what she is saying here in verse 27 is, man, your mom should be really proud of you. She raised a good son. Right? This is a sort of a roundabout way of praising Jesus by praising his mom. This is common in, in uh, ancient Near Eastern culture to honor a mother by pointing out her son's accomplishments and to honor the son by saying, man, your mom really did a good job raising you. She's blessed. Mary is blessed. And then Jesus comes along and says, yea, rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So Jesus is saying, yes, it's true that, that, that Mary was blessed, but you know what? You want to be even more blessed than Mary. You hear the word and you keep it. So is it true that Mary is blessed? And the answer is yes. We go back to Luke chapter 1, same book, same teaching from, uh, from Luke. Um, look at Luke 1 verse 28. This is when, when, when the angel appear, appears to Mary. The angel, this is Gabriel, said to her, Hail! Thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. You are envied. You are sort of the, 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 the highest you can possibly go of among women to be the one to bear the Messiah. So, yes, the angel blesses her. Look down in verse 42. Here's Elizabeth, uh, Mary's cousin. And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Pronouncing a blessing, Mary, you're, you're happy, you're enviable, you are someone who's in a state of just being completely fulfilled, like this is, you're, you're, you really have it made. Verse 45, and blessed is she that believed, for, she, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. A little bit of a contrast, when Zacharias got the message about John the Baptist being born, he didn't believe, and he was struck with the inability to speak for those nine months. Mary, on the other hand, believed. Uh, she had said in verse 38, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And so Elizabeth says, You're blessed. Why? Because not only you get to bear the Messiah, but you believed the word of God when it came to you. Verse 48, this is Mary in her song of praise. For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. Envied, admired, respected. Now, this doesn't mean that she's worshipped or that she is to be venerated or anything like that. That would be false teaching. But Mary truly is blessed. What this woman says is true. It is a fulfillment of what was said in Luke chapter 1. But Jesus is saying, oh, yes, as blessed as Mary is, you can be even more blessed than Mary. Man, that would be so awesome to literally get to be the mother of the Messiah. Think about it. I've got a, I've got a baby. Several of you here are raising kids. Imagine having a son who never, ever sinned. Now, that'd be pretty sweet. Imagine knowing that the child you're raising is actually God in the flesh. You have this inside knowledge. That would be pretty awesome, right? Like, that's incredible. Jesus is saying you are more blessed than even Mary. If you hear the word, you do it. 
That is incredible. Jesus said something similar, by the way, just back in Luke chapter 8. Verse 19, then came to him his mother and brethren and could not come at him for the press. Luke 8, verse 20, and it was told him by certain which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to see thee. And he answered and said to them, My mother and brethren are those which hear the word of God and do it. So if you really want to be family, you really want to be blessed, you need to have an attentiveness to the word. Again, context here in Luke 11. The the Pharisees, the scribes, the crowd, they're rejecting Jesus, saying, if you want to truly receive me, it's more than just fascination. It is having attentive ears. Jesus puts it this way in other places. He that has ears to hear, let him what? Let Let him hear. This eagerness to hear the word. So what is attentiveness? Attentiveness is not just sort of the the auditory exercise of listening, right? But it is the idea of of actively listening. It's more than just sort of passively, oh, yeah, I hear that. I hear you. But the idea of I'm listening and I want to understand so that I can do it. In fact, in the Hebrew, the word for hear and obey is the same Hebrew word because they understood that genuine hearing means hearing so that you go and do it. So hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It's not just, hey, just let these things kind of come in and rattle around in your brain, but it's the, the idea that you would actually do what is heard. We are to hear the word eagerly. Like Mary, what is it that made Mary blessed? Ironically, the thing that made Mary blessed is she heard God's word and she believed it, right? There was an eagerness to her listening. Oh, beloved, what a privilege we have to know Christ by faith. What a privilege we have to own a Bible, to actually own our own copy of Scripture, was unheard of by most Christians throughout history. If you're a Christian living in, say, the 895 A.D., you did not have a Bible. Only people who had Bibles were monks away in monasteries who were copying them. If you did have a Bible, it was probably in Latin or in Greek, and you probably couldn't read Latin or Greek. In fact, you probably couldn't read at all. And here we are. We have Bibles in our hands. We have Bibles on our, on our phones. We have Bibles on our shelves. We have apps and podcasts with people who are accurately teaching and preaching the Bible. There are YouTube videos. You get to come to a church that's, like, that's actually close by your house. You, there, there's nobody here today who had to come 10 hours today to come hear the church, to, to hear the Word of God at church. Do you hear the Word of God eagerly or just dutifully? Oh, fine, whatever. Listen, an eager attentiveness to hear the Word will be an eager attentiveness to say, I want to come gather with God's people. Now, hearing the Word is more than, but it is certainly not less than coming to church. Saying, I want to be attentive and prioritize and keep and and honor the Word. Come where it's being proclaimed, right? Come where it is being taught. But more than that, we have the ability to read and to study the Word on our own. Of course, attentiveness, as I mentioned, means hearing the Word obediently. The Pharisees were quite good, um, you know, at hearing, and they parsed out all of the stuff, and they got their theology right, but they didn't carry it out. I just read this morning about a guy who was, um, went to, was visiting the country of Iceland. And along the roads, they have, you know, those, uh, when you're off on the trail, they have those piles of rocks called cairns that, that, that kind of be the trails this way, not off that way. And the, the, the guide was telling him, oh, over here in Iceland, we call these rock piles priests. Well, why do they call them Priests. Because they point the way, but don't go there themselves. Like, ouch. Right? We can point people the way, oh, you need to do that, but we don't actually go that way ourselves. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a challenging thought where we can be like, we've got our theology right, but are you living it? That's what it means to hear the word and to, to keep it. Keeping it, by the way, is more than just, oh, I'm going to do it, but it's this idea of treasuring it, and I'm going to hold it tightly, and I'm going to honor it to such a degree that doing it is a given. So receiving Christ, Jesus is saying, if you want to be really blessed... Hear and do my word, and Pharisees, I'm looking right at you, is the sense here. Don't reject me. Don't say, I is demon-possessed. But hear what I'm saying and actually go and do it. This theme comes up again and again. Jesus has that illustration of the person who hears it and does, does the word, like a person who builds your house on a rock. The person who hears it and doesn't do it, it's like building your house on the sand. It's a dumb thing to do, right? You've got all the information, but you don't actually do anything with it. James 1 is basically an extended commentary on this. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be hearers and doers. If you're like just a hearer, you're like a person who looks in the mirror and is like, ah, cool, there's spaghetti in my beard, and then you go away with spaghetti still in your beard, right? The the word is like a mirror that reveals what's going on in our lives and shows us what we need to do to correct it. So truly receiving Christ. Hey, listen, this is so much more than just like I was sitting there and I raised my hand when the preacher said to do it. 
or I recited a prayer. Receiving Christ requires your, your, your affections to be transformed. It's going to result in your affections being transformed. And it's going to require attentive ears. So the affections, the ears. Let's move on with our spiritual anatomy. Thirdly, receiving Christ requires repentant hearts. So affections, ears, hearts. Verse 29, he now comes along to that second charge. The first charge was, Jesus, you're demon-possessed. We looked at that last week. Second charge was, uh, there's not enough light here for us to really know what to do. We need more signs. We need more evidence. Now, the context here, Jesus literally just delivered a guy from a demon, right? The demon had made the guy unable to speak. Now the guy is able to speak. He's performed an incredible miracle. And there's some people sitting there being like, well, I don't know if I can really believe that. I need more evidence before I make it. I'm a, I'm a very rational person. I need, I need to see this. I need, I need some empirical proof here. Jesus says in verse 29, essentially, you don't need more proof. You need repentance. Look at it. When the people were gathered thick together, the idea as the crowd was growing. So while Jesus is preaching more and more and more, people are coming. So what Jesus is saying is not just here for the subset of the crowd that was there earlier, but this is generally true of the nation. This is an evil generation. They're seeking a sign. And there shall no sign be given it but the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonas, this is Jonah, right, the guy who was swallowed by a whale, was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, shall arise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here, the men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, a greater than Jonah is here. So he gets to this point in verse 32 of, hey, the people in Nineveh, they actually repented. Here, this generation, and when he says this generation, he's referring generally to the people who heard him and saw him. By the way, that language has rich Old Testament roots. You can find out in Psalm 95, this generation, the, the, the wilderness generation, remember they had 40 years wandering the wilderness, saw the mighty works of God and didn't believe, didn't make it into the promised land. He's saying, y'all are like that. You're like the generation whose carcasses fell in the wilderness because you would not believe, so you would not repent. This is an evil generation. What's the answer to evil? It is Repentance. So they're demanding a sign. They're seeking a sign. Like, we need more signs and wonders. Now, a sign is something that points to something else. It is something that validates a message. It validates revelation. So Jesus is making these claims to be the Messiah and hinting that he is God's son, that he is divine. And they're thinking, now, we really need to see more evidence. Well, at this point, Jesus has cast out demons. He has raised the dead. He has healed multitudes of people. He has fed fed 5,000 people at one time. He has fed the 4,000. He has done miracle after miracle after miracle, and they're still thinking, I don't know. We, we need something really awesome. They ask for a sign back in verse 16, a sign from heaven. Like, hey, that's pretty cool. You're doing signs on earth, but rearrange the stars for us. Bring fire from heaven. Then we'll, then we'll believe. Then we'll believe. We want something awesome. One more sign we'll believe but verse 29, he says, there shall no sign be given. He said, I don't give signs to unbelieving people. Faith is a prerequisite for signs, not signs a prerequisite for faith. Yeah, well, uh, if I see it, then I'll believe it. Jesus says, no, you need to believe, and then you will see. Faith precedes understanding, not understanding. Faith there shall no sign be given. They demand the sign, and he refuses the sign. These people are, in effect, sitting in a room that is well-lighted, saying, I'm not going to get up out of my seat and walk anywhere until there is more light so I can see where I'm going. It's like the, the, the sun is shining. You're not going to get any more light than what you've got right now. The issue is not a lack of light. There's no sign except the sign of Jonah. They refused him in spite of great evidence. Listen, we should not be shocked when the majority of people reject Christ. Oh, my goodness, it's such a clear gospel presentation. I was sharing the gospel with my cousin, and it was so clear, and he rejected it. Listen, if the people of Jesus' day rejected the gospel, 
with God incarnate standing in front of them, it should not surprise us when people reject the gospel today. The human heart, the human condition is not changed. So as John 1 says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehends it not. That's not just a description of the worst instances of human depravity. That's a description of universal human depravity. Men love darkness rather than light. Sometimes get the idea like, man, if we could just send a missionary over here, then everybody's going to be revival and everyone will love Jesus. And then the missionary goes and people are like, yeah, we, we don't want Jesus. That, that is what it means to be a sinner is you reject Christ and you want to do your own thing. So Jesus says, I'm not going to satisfy your faithless curiosity. You'll still find a way to not believe. So, so I'm not going to give you any, any more signs but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now, what is the sign of Jonah the prophet? There, there are some people, one view says this, the sign of the, the prophet Jonah is that Jonah preached and a bunch of people repented. Jonah's message was the, was the sign. And in the same way, Jesus' message is the sign. That doesn't make much sense because the way signs function in the Bible is signs validate the message. So the validation of the message can't be the message, right? Like a sign points to Disneyland. The sign is not Disneyland. A sign is something that says, hey, there it is over there. No, the sign is something other than the message. So verse 30 explains, For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. The sign was not anything that Jonah said. The sign was Jonah himself. Now, to help us understand this, go over to Matthew 12. This is a parallel text. I try not to do this too often when I'm preaching through one of the Gospels because I like us to see, you know, what is Luke saying to us, what is Mark saying to us, rather than just sort of a harmony of the Gospels. But in this case, Matthew explains it in more detail. And I think Luke is assuming that Matthew has already written at this point, that uh, people would know the sign of Jonah. We know what Matthew says about it. Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12. So the scribes and Pharisees in verse 38 said, we would see a sign from thee, verse 39. He answered and said, an evil and adulterous generation. So Matthew adds that that imagery of spiritual adultery that would make sense to his Jewish audience. They seek a sign and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So here's what the sign of Jonah is. Back to Luke. The sign of Jonah was not so much Jonah's preaching and the Ninevites' repentance. The sign of Jonah was the fact that Jonah spent three days in a whale's belly. Like that, that, was, the, that was the thing that, that, that was really the, the wow factor with Jonah's ministry. Now, we don't have Jonah get up and tell, like, guys, you'll never believe what happened to me. And they're like, wow, we're going to believe your message. I think they smelled the fact that Jonah had spent three days in a whale's belly, right? They were like, everybody kind of knew about this word traveled ahead of Jonah. Like, here's a dude who got barfed up on the beach by a whale, and he's going to Nineveh. And so when he comes, it, 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 there's this, this spectacle. Now, it's not actually said in Jonah, but it's almost the implication, reading between the lines, that people knew about this, and it gained him a hearing, gained him an audience. Jesus is saying that just as Jonah came back from the dead, as it were, you can't get almost presumed dead of, uh, he got sw- swallowed by a whale. Like, okay, we're just going to presume him dead. It's almost like a resuscitation. Jesus is saying, I am going to come back after three days. By the way, the language three days, three nights is not meant to be taken as exactly one, two, three nights, one, two, three days, but it, it, it's sort of stereotypical language to say three days. Jesus is put in the grave Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Some people are like, well, we've got to have three nights in there, so it's really got to be Wednesday. That's not the point. Three days, three nights is a Hebrew way of saying a three-day time frame, maybe counting inclusively, exclusively. Just don't get caught up in, 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 in splitting hairs on that one. Here's the point. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the ultimate proof of his claims. Jesus is like, I'm not going to do a sign from heaven. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you evidence. I'm going to give you proof that I really am who I say I am. You're going to kill me, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to be in the ground for three days, and then I'm going to rise again. This is a sign of the resurrection. Say, so what's the ultimate proof that Christianity is true? The ultimate proof that Christianity is true is that the grave is empty. All right, the resurrection of Jesus declares him to be the Son of God with power, according to Romans 1 and verse 4. The resurrection of the dead, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is at the absolute heart of what we believe. If the resurrection is not true, 
Christianity is false. That's the argument Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, we're of all men most miserable. This is a waste of time. But Christ is risen from the dead. And he's been seen by all of these people. And we have evidence and we have eyewitness accounts. He really did rise again from the dead. There is no explanation of the origins of Christianity that makes any sense if the body is still in the tomb. It's absurd, right? It doesn't make any sense. What proof could you have more than someone rising from the dead? Yet Luke 16.31 says they won't believe even if one would rise from the dead. People still reject it. You read the book of Acts, and these same guys who are rejecting Jesus here reject the apostles there. These are the same people who will say, hey, say the disciples stole the body by night. They, they, they know what happened in the book of Acts. They're persecuting the apostles. So the sign is the sign of the resurrection. Receiving Jesus means repentance, repenting from this unbelief and this hard-heartedness and saying, I'm going to trust in the risen Savior. But look back in our text, Luke 11, verse 31. Jesus gives some other examples from the Old Testament. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. And the men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with his generation and shall condemn it. For they repented of the preaching of Jonah. Behold, a greater than Jonah is here. You read about the story with the queen of Sheba. Solomon's kingdom, Solomon's rule marks the high point of, it's the high watermark of, of Israel's power and glory in the Old Testament. They've become sort of the, the lights to the nations. Everyone is just in, in awe of what God is doing with the nation. So here comes the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, all the way from probably modern-day Yemen. So you picture the Arabian Peninsula, all the way at the end of the Arabian Peninsula. She makes this 1,500-mile journey all the way to Jerusalem to say, I've heard about Solomon. I've got to come and see what's going on. And she leaves saying the half of it was not told me. It's far greater than I ever imagined. Okay, 1,500-mile journey is tough, even today, driving on I-10, right? That's a long drive. It's about a 30-hour drive using modern-day roads today. If you want to drive from Yemen, you've got to drive through the Arabian Peninsula up the Red Sea. You can make a 30-hour drive in the car today. Okay, on camels, that's a really, really long and uncomfortable and dangerous journey to make. So here's this woman who literally moves from you know, the ends of the earth to Jerusalem on the basis of hearsay. On the basis of hearing the, the, the wisdom of a mere mortal, Solomon. And she believes, and I believe she came to saving faith in the God of Israel through that trip. So here she's operating on far slimmer evidence, coming to a far, uh, someone who's uh, uh, far lesser than Jesus. He's saying she's going to stand up on Judgment Day. By the way, there's going to be a resurrection. The dead, small, and great will stand before God. On Judgment Day, she's going to stand as sort of a, a witness against those who had far greater light, far greater opportunity, far greater spiritual resources, and rejected the truth. She believed with less light. She's going to condemn you. You cannot say that it was not because we did not know. Point's the same in verse 32. The Ninevites. Okay, Jonah's message. Okay, you go back and read Jonah 3 today. Jonah's message is 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. The end. Like, wow, that's a hope-giving message. And the people repent, and they put on sackcloth and ashes, and the king declares a fast, and the whole city, this wicked, pagan city, Nineveh, turns to God. Complete, total repentance. It's got to be the most effective sermon preached in the Bible. You read the Old Testament prophets, and most of them had very ineffective ministries, like Isaiah. You're like, oh, Isaiah, man, he was an awesome preacher. Now God's like, no, they're not going to believe you. Their, their eyes are going to be closed and hardened through your preaching. Jeremiah, they, man, they loved his preaching sh so much, they threw him down into a, into a mud pit. They locked him up in prison. Ezekiel, he's over there among the, the exiles, and God's like, I'm going to have to give you a face of bronze to deal with the hostility you're going to face. Uh, you get Elijah just constantly being hounded by Ahab and Elisha. Like, the, 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 the preachers of the Old Testament, most of them went unheard. But man, Jonah comes along, he's perhaps the most effective preacher in the entire Bible. Preaches one of the shortest sermons to some of the hardest people, and has this incredible revival, right? And Jesus says, a greater than him is here. Here's the point, Jesus is saying, receiving me requires real repentance 
And here's the deal. You have more light than anyone in history, and yet you're still refusing me? It does not make sense. Now, according to Luke, Jesus is greater than John. According to Luke 3.16, Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. Last week, we saw that he is stronger than Satan. He's the stronger one than Satan, Luke 11, verse 22. Here we find out that he is wiser than Solomon and better than Jonah. Elsewhere in Scripture, we find out that John was the greatest man born among women. Satan is the strongest of those created among angels. And John was the most effective among preachers in Israel. Here's the conclusion. Jesus is greater than the greatest. Jesus is stronger than the strongest. Jesus is wiser than the wisest. And he is better than the best. And he's saying to refuse and to reject me is the ultimate act of defiance against God. This is the Savior that we have. If you're a believer, you're complete in Christ. There is nothing more that you need because Jesus is the greatest one. He is the culmination of Old Testament wisdom. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is the fulfillment of the deepest longings of the human heart. And to refuse him, oh my. Writer of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And I would say to you, beloved, you have even greater privilege than those who heard Jesus. You you get to hear Jesus from the pages of Scripture. You, unlike them, actually have the completed canon of Scripture. Some of you come week after week to church, and you, you hear the gospel. You know deep down, I'm not actually a believer not actually bowed the knee to Jesus. I'm going to put it off. I'm going to put it off. Oh, my, you stand in enormous jeopardy before God. You will face a fiercer judgment on Judgment Day than the gang rapists of Sodom. That's what Jesus says earlier. You will face a fiercer judgment than those in the Old Testament who did child sacrifice. They just didn't have God's revelation. Yes, they will be condemned, but you will be condemned all the greater because you had the light shining right in your face, and you still rejected it. Oh, to to, to live where we live and to have what we have and to still reject Jesus ought to make us tremble. You have neighbors and coworkers and family members who are standing in eternal jeopardy. Just a single heartbeat between them and eternal judgment, a single breath between them and standing before their Creator, how shall we neglect if we how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Receiving Christ requires repentance. That's what he's saying here. The Queen of Sheba travels to, to come see this. The, the, the men of Jonah's day, this is sort of the climax of the step parallelism. They repented. Will you repent? But finally, receiving Jesus requires that we have open eyes. So going through this, the spiritual anatomy here, that what does it mean to receive Jesus? Transformed affections. We've got to have, got to have this, this new heart, these, these new loves. We've got to have open ears, attentive ears. We've got to have a repentant heart. But finally, we have to have open eyes. So verse 33 almost feels like, it sort of feels sort of tacked on. No man, when he has lighted a candle, puts it in a secret place, nor under a bushel, but on a candlestick. We get this language in in other places, right? You can read about this in in Matthew 5 where the point is, hey, Christians, you have the light. Don't cover the light. Uh, So let your light so shine before men. The light of the body is the eye. We get that in Matthew 6 where Jesus is like, have a single focus on God and be willing to give to others. Don't care what other people think. These here are common phrases that Jesus uses in multiple different contexts with different reference points, uh, reference points, different reference Uh, So we'd we'd be making a mistake. Let's just be careful that we don't sort of woodenly interpret all of these images because, well, he uses it this way over here. He's got to be using it the same way over here. What is Jesus referring to? I think what he's referring to is the light is me, he's saying. The light is the glory of God, this revelation in, in God's own Son. It's entered the world. It's not being hidden. It's not being shielded. You can hear the message. You can see the miracles, he's saying to his audience. The light has been revealed. So the end of verse 33, you don't take a light and then go hide it under your bed, right? You don't go hang all the Christmas lights at the end of November and deck the house off and then be like, yeah, we're not going to plug those in. We don't want anyone to see our our Christmas. Oh, that would be dumb, right? Just hung a light the other day um, above the kitchen table. It would be kind of silly to hang the light and be like, yeah, I'm not going to actually wire it up. It's just going to be there. Nobody's going to see it. You put a light fixture up so you can turn the lights on. He's saying you light a candle. You don't hide it under a basket. 
you put it on the, the candlestick, which in the, in the house would have been a little shelf notch in the wall where you take your little clay oil lamp and you put it on a prominent place so that it casts light. Anybody coming into the house can see what's going on. Saying, Jew, Gentile, anyone who comes to the kingdom, anyone who comes to me will have this light. Here's what Jesus is saying. You have the light. The light has been revealed. It's not being hidden from you. Your issue is not a lack of light. The light of the world is here. So light, light has to be revealed, but light also has to be received. Verse 34 changes the image. The light of the body is the eye. Okay, imagine you, you have no eyes this morning. Okay, I, 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 what that would be like is it would be pitch darkness. So in a sense, the, the eye is like the light for your body because it's the aperture through which light comes, right? If you, if you have no eyes, everything is darkness. So he says there's an external source of light, but that's only good if it meets eyes that are actually open and healthy. If you, if you are blind, if your eyes are pinched shut, you can't see anything. So just to explain what's going on here with this metaphor, he's sort of changing the idea. There's, there's the lamp that's on the wall, but in a sense, your eye is like a lamp because through the eye comes the light. It's like the, you know, the, the, the lampshade. The light is dispersed through that. So the means of the reception, the eye, is associated with that which is received, the light. So the, here's what he's saying in verse 34. The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when an eye is single or healthy, thy whole body is also full of light. But when an eye is evil, thy body is also full of darkness. Now, he's speaking quite metaphorically here, right? Like light does not actually like fill your entire body. But he's saying in a sense that the light, when your eyes are open, gives you light for your body. So if you've ever tried to play base, baseball in the dark... Uh, doesn't work too well, right? You're not able to do what you need to do. We would do that as kids. We would, like, play until the last possible moment. You're, like, trying to see the baseball as the sun is it's getting dark out there. It's hard to do. Or if you're walking through the house in the middle of the night and all the lights are off and there are Legos strewn on the floor, that's, that's a really dangerous, dangerous scenario. I've lived in my house for four years, and if I get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, I always somehow manage to, to just smack my shin on the edge of the bed. Like, the bed's where it's always been. I always run into it. Like, darkness, when, when there's not light, or if you, if you did not have the ability to see, you don't know what to do with your feet. You don't know where to go. You don't know what to do with your hands and, and all of these things. He's saying that when the eye is open, when light is received, you're able to do stuff. You're able to go places. Now, the key term here is this word translated single, when an eye is single. Now, what he doesn't mean is that you've got an eye patch. He's got like one eye or like one eye right up here, like Mike Wazowski going on. What he means is that you have a single focus, right? When your eye is healthy and you have a single focus, you're able to see what is going on when your eye is healthy. So this, eye, this word here has, is the idea of pertaining to being motivated by singleness of purpose, so as to be open and above board, without guile, sincere, straightforward, without a hidden agenda. Okay, the Pharisees, they had an evil eye. They're looking at Jesus. They're like, well, he's really satanically empowered. He's holding out on us. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. They're, they're hypocrites. Jesus is saying, receiving me means having this, this eye that receives me by faith. So having a single eye is the same thing as having faith. It is to be receptive to the gospel. Verse 34 goes on, but when that eye is evil, so we've got either an eye that is single, that is healthy, or an eye that is evil, that is blind. We either see Christ with the eyes of faith, or we're blind to who he really is. We're either saved or we're lost. We either receive him truly by faith with open eyes, or we reject him. Thy body is, also, thy body is full of darkness. So like everything rises and falls on, do you see Jesus by faith? Do you have a right relationship with him? Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. Now, this is a play on words here. Take heed is see to it. See to it that the light in you is not darkness. The Pharisees thought they knew a whole bunch of stuff. Right? Oh, yeah, we, we parsed the Bible. He says, make sure that the light in you is, is not actually darkness because you're missing the main point. He's going to say in the text next week, oh, you guys tithe of all of your, your spices, but you forget the love of God. Right? So the things you got right are actually darkness because of what you got wrong. You can get a lot of things right about sort of Christianity and morality, but if you don't have Jesus right, it's darkness. Right? Be like, oh, I've got a you know, Christian ethic on these different areas and my Christian, you know, Christian ideas and how I vote and do stuff. 
Yeah, but do you receive Christ by faith? The light that's in you is actually darkness if Jesus is not rightfully received. So there's this evil eye, these eyes that are blind. Think of it this way. The light is shining, but the eyes are blind. And not only that, they are deliberately being shut. There's a twofold problem here for the Pharisees. There's a twofold problem for the lost. It's not that our eyes are just closed and boom, we can voluntarily open them whenever we wish. It's that our eyes are actually blind. Second uh, Corinthians 4 verse 4 tells us that the God of this world has blinded the hearts of them who do not believe. We're as incapable of saving ourselves as a blind man is in giving himself sight. Right? We need a work of God. So 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6 says the God who says, let there be light, says, let there be light in our hearts. That is what is required, a divine, let there be light, a divine, your eyes are open from God the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel for us to be able to see Christ. So what happens when light is rejected? The light you think you have is darkness, verse 35. Then verse 36 concludes, if thy whole body therefore be full of light, having no dark part, the whole shall be full of light as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. It almost feels like a, the tautology is like when there's light, well, then you'll have light. The, the idea of this word that's translated uh, full of light is the idea of radiant, right? It's not that I just have light, but this light is radiating in other areas of my life. When I receive Christ, right, with the eyes of faith, light is radiated in every area of my life. It's not just, well, now spiritually things are good. But it's like what C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sunrise. Not that I see it but that by it I see everything else. The idea is that when we, so we receive Christ, we see everything else in light of who he is. We now have the ability to look at philosophy and politics and relationships and work and marriage in light of Christ under his lordship. Divine light shines on every aspect of human existence. It directs our decisions. It shapes our viewpoints. It alters our affections. And it radiates out to others. So we're, we're called here in this text, in this chapter, to receive Christ. Not, not the rejecting him and need more light, more evidence. The light is shining. The question is, will you, will you see it? Will you receive Christ by faith? Have you done that? Are your ears attuned to hear his voice? Is your heart repentant? Are your eyes opened? A couple of applications for those who are Christians. Number one, love the light. One thing is, okay, yes, I've been, the light's been hit in my life, I'm, I'm saved. But do you love the light? Do you love the Word? Do you love Christ? If you love it, here's what it's going to look like. You're going to seek it, and you're going to enjoy it. You're going to man, get into the Word of Christ, and I'm going to let this dwell in me richly. Secondly, we should live the light. Live the light. According to 1 John 5, we are to walk in the light as he is in the light. How? Confess your sins. Walking in the light means there's no darkness that I'm going to just sort of hide in these. I can't say that I love the light of God when I, there's, there's sort of rooms in my heart that I'm like, I keep that room closed and the door shut and no light is allowed to penetrate it. We should be ready to confess our sins and to bring sin into the light and then to proclaim that light to others. Father, thank you for your word. May we love your light.